So before we dive into this text, I, I want to take a moment and introduce our new sermon series to you. Um, so I think you can see the artwork there, Gospel Foundations. Um, normally here at Redeemer, we work our way uh, consecutively through books of the Scripture. Um, last week, we finished the book of First Peter after several months. And, and before we dive into our next book, we're going to take six weeks and we're going to think about our gospel foundations. That is, what are the, the realities of the Scripture that allow a Christian, a human, a church to be built upon the gospel and the saving power of Jesus Christ? And here's why we're going to do this now. One, well, we finished 1 Peter last week, so that was good timing. But two, um, this particular time of 2017, um, Christians around the world are, are celebrating the 500th anniversary of what's known as the Protestant Reformation. And that may or may not mean anything to you, but here's what I want us to recognize, is that the Protestant Reformation was a movement of God where Christians recovered the gospel of Jesus, the power of God's word, and the necessity of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Because believe it or not, in the history of the church, the gospel has been lost, and the gospel can be lost again. Believe it or not, the, the sufficiency and the power of the word of God has been lost, and it can be lost again. Believe it or not, the necessity of God's saving grace for humanity has been lost and it can be lost again. And so what we hope to do is to look back, because history is our friend, look back and be rooted anew in the gospel of Jesus. Our goal, to, to make heroes out of people from the past? Absolutely not. Our goal, to get really geeky and academic about church history? We do that during a Sunday school class at 9.15 each Sunday. You're all invited. We're studying the Protestant Reformation. Not our goal here. But our goal is to look back and say God providentially led people like Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, and many others to be moved of God to have the gospel and the power of the word be recovered so that the church could rest on its foundations. And we want to build upon the foundations of the gospel. So we're going to explore them over the next few weeks. My hope is not that we would become more academic. We've got plenty of that running around already. My hope is that we would not become more cerebral because we could be accused of being too cerebral at times. But my hope is that we would all become convinced anew that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, as revealed in the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Because the more we can recognize that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, as revealed in the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, the more we will be posturing ourselves to receive and to bask in the glory of God, to bask in the grace of God, to bask in the saving grace of Jesus, and to worship Him appropriately. That's what I want. That's what I want. And so when you hear the word alone there, 
grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, glory of God alone. Don't hear only, but hear supremely. Hear chiefly. They come from a Latin phrase for the word sola, which means that that our salvation is supremely by God's grace, supremely through faith in Jesus Christ as revealed supremely in the scriptures for the supreme purpose of the glory of God. So for the next six weeks, here's what we're going to talk about. God's word, God's saving son, God's saving grace, God's gift of faith, God's glory, and God's vision for the church. God's word, God's saving son, God's saving grace, God's gift of faith, God's glory, and God's vision for the church. So I'm not really out to make you any kind of Christian. I'm not really out to change the label that you may or may not carry about yourself. I'm not out for you to pick a tribe or a camp, but I'm out for us to make sure that we have our gospel foundation clear. Because upon a right understanding of God's word, a right understanding of the saving power of Jesus, a right dependency upon God's grace, a right understanding of how faith and works work together, a right understanding of God's glory, and a right understanding of what God wants for his church, we can face today and tomorrow and the future, and we can build upon that gospel foundation. You ever seen a house with a bad foundation? It's not good. Everything breaks. So we want to be built on the right foundation. So today, we're going to start by talking about God's Word. God's Word. And I admit that I'm up against a wall today because we're in the South Most of us claim to be Christians, and most of us love to say, oh yeah, God's Word, I'm for it. The Bible, it's awesome. If I didn't have the Bible, I wouldn't know what to do, right? But yet, all around us is a culture that just makes God's Word into a toy and into a trinket and makes it something silly that the world scoffs at. I mean, have you ever seen a pillow that said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest? Anybody ever seen that stitch on a pillow? I have. And if you have it, I hope you will take it to Goodwill this afternoon. Because that is not what that verse has anything to do with. That's our gospel hope. If you go to Opry Mills, the mall... In Nashville, you will find at least three kiosks selling trinkets that make God's word sound silly and like whitewash that just placates our needy souls. The Old and New Testament are not for your breath. There are these things called testaments. Yeah. Look, I'm, I'm, trying to be, I'm trying to draw you in. We all say, yeah, we love the Bible. We all say, yeah, Jesus is in the Bible. But most of us only think of the Bible like a little emotional pick-me-up for the day. 
Like a little, let me get a little chicken soup for my soul and then I'll move on to what I need. Man, the scripture, the word of God is God speaking to reveal himself, to reveal his salvation, to pierce us to the core so that we will see how great He is and how much we depend upon Him. The Word of God has very little to do about us, yet it changes everything about us. And I feel convicted to pick the hardest, most convicting, most terse and most to the point passage I could find in the Bible about God's word because I'm praying that we will be shaken this morning. I'm praying that we will say the supreme place of God's word in my salvation, the supreme place of God's word in truth, the supreme place of God's word in knowledge would shape me and shape us in such a way that we are exalting God through And that our elders would turn off their smartphones on the front row. (laughs) Unless you have a child in the nursery, at which point you should keep your smartphone on unless they text you, right? Okay. And Siri is not God. What's the Google version of Siri? Do we have a name for that guy? Google isn't either, nor Alexa. If you don't know what those are, don't worry about it. Your life is probably better. So where was I? I'm praying that from this hard passage, we would recognize that God's word, which reveals to us salvation and truth and real knowledge, would take a place of supremacy in our lives and in our minds and in our time and in our families. Because God doesn't desire that we pay homage to his word. He desires that we pay worship to him because we've met him in his word. God doesn't desire that we go, oh yeah, the Bible's good. God desires that we run to the Bible because we meet him there. God doesn't desire that we have biblical values, but he desires that we have convictions that are shaped by his word in such a way that we live them out boldly. I'm probably getting too close to being offensive, so we'll just let Ezekiel do that now. Um, Ashlyn, thank you for reading this morning. I kind of just wanted to sit down and say amen when you got done. But our passage is Ezekiel 13. If you not turn there already, turn there. Let me ask you this question. What are the things that make you the most angry? What are the things that make you the most angry? Usually, what makes us the most angry 
are the things that we value the most, right? Like I say something about your mama, it's on, right? Because nobody talks about my mama except for me. I say something about your spouse, it's on. I say something about your child's behavior, it's fine for you to point that out, but it's on, right? I say something about your most beloved possession, or I threaten your most beloved possession, and it's on, right? That which we value most makes us the most angry. Now, let me just ask you, do I need, would you like me to read Ezekiel 13 again, or was once convicting enough? Once, yeah. What is God's disposition in this passage? God is angry. Righteously and justly and holy anger is not sinful. And if our picture of God doesn't make space for God to be angry when his name and his word are trampled, then we must return to the word and meet the real God. In this passage, God is angry angry. And with whom is he angry? Those sinful pagans? No. Those immature Israelites? No. The mature Israelites? No. The leaders of Israel? No. God is angry with the people in Israel who had been appointed the role to rightly speak God's word to his people. God's angry here because the prophets, those whom have been appointed to speak God's word to his people as it was delivered to them by the Spirit, are misrepresenting God. And by misrepresenting God, they are belittling God. And by disrepresenting and belittling God, they are telling lies about God. Now, I want to prove to you that that's what's going on in this passage. But I, but I want to actually start with a story. This Thursday, I had the opportunity to speak to a group of teenagers over at Union University. And... Um, I got about eight hours of preparation for that speaking engagement. So, um, meaning they called me eight hours before and said, hey, could you be here? And so, um, I just decided, well, these guys are going to help me write my sermon. So, I walk into this group of of 17-year-olds and I read Ezekiel 13, 1 through 16 to them. And I said to them, I said, hey, how's God feel right now in this passage? And they go, he's angry. And I said... Why is he angry? And Haley, on the front row, raised her hand and she said, because they are taking God's name in vain. And I went, Haley, that's good. I'm going to write that down. Haley, you're going to make the sermon on Sunday. Because this 17-year-old, in about three seconds of reflection, nailed it. 
thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, is not just a slogan that we say on athletic fields, but it's when we ascribe false truth and false character and false things to God. And so what this passage tells me, and it should tell you and it should tell us, is that God values his word deeply because his word is how he reveals himself. And he is angry when his word is misrepresented. Because when his word is misrepresented, he's misrepresented. Now let's just see if I can prove this to you. Because if I can't prove it to you, then I'm just as guilty as those guys and I should sit down But listen to what God says. He says to Ezekiel, speak against the prophets of Israel. Why? They are prophesying, they're speaking in God's name from their own hearts. Oh, fear not, we'll come back to that. They're following their own spirits. They say that they've seen something from God, but they've actually seen nothing. They are doling out false security and false hope. They are telling false visions. They are speaking lying divinations. They were not sent by me to say what they said, yet they expect me to do what they say. I have not spoken through them. They are giving out false peace when I would give out warning And they are whitewashing the walls. That is, they're covering over the major defects in the walls rather than pointing out the major defects so that they can be spoken about and spoken to. Now, if your primary purpose in the world is to represent God to God's people by speaking God's word to them, is that a good performance review? No. No, what God is saying is these people are frauds and failures. They are liars. So how does God respond to that? Well, you might say, well, He'll just send Ezekiel to clean up the mess. Or, well, He would just have Ezekiel speak a truer word. Or, He just, you know, would would ask them nicely, to be quiet, or, or something to that effect. But let's look particularly at what God says to these prophets. Go back to the beginning of the passage. He says, verse 8, I am against you. My hand is against you. You will no longer be in the council 
of my people. You no longer will be enrolled in the register of the people. I will destroy your false prophecy and what it has created, and you will perish. Just here, verse 15. Thus I will send my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. So let's just ask this simple question. What does God want us to take away from Ezekiel chapter 13. He wants us to take away that it is a major ordeal to ascribe untrue things to the voice of God. Does it seem like a fair reading of this text? It's a major ordeal to ascribe untrue things to the voice of God. Why? Why? Doesn't that just seem so mean? Doesn't that just seem so antiquated? Doesn't that just seem so traditional? Doesn't that just seem so Old Testament? I thought God sent Jesus to show us His love and His grace and His mercy. God sent Jesus to make God known to us. Jesus willfully came to make God's way of salvation known to us. And when lies are ascribed to God, that does not happen. Therefore, God tells us why this is such a big deal. These prophets, verse 9, shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. Why? And you shall know that I am the Lord God. Why is God going to act against these lying prophets to display who He is and make His greatness known? Verse 14, I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash and bring it to the ground so that its foundations will be laid bare and when it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it. Why? And you shall know that I am the Lord. You see, God is interested in making himself known to the world because knowing God is best for the world. God is interested in making His Word known to the world because knowing God's ways is best for the world. God is interested in making Himself and His saving Son known to the world because in knowing God, we know salvation, we know life, we know mercy, we know grace, we know forgiveness, and we know that His glorious person is is the best thing for us. God is infinitely convinced that His 
world is best when he is known and worshipped and followed and obeyed and served. And God is convinced that his world is most blessed when his word is clearly known and believed and heard and followed. So, what makes God angry? There's many answers to that question. But the answer that Ezekiel 13 gives us is, God is angry when God is misrepresented. And God is angry when God's word is misspoken. So that leads then to a series of reflections and applications for us. I guess that most of you, when you read Ezekiel 13, either said something like this, I'm glad I'm not a preacher. Or that particular preacher, fill in his name, ought to quake in his boots. Those are appropriate applications. Trust me, I stand up here today with a little more, shall we say, fear and trembling than I do on a normal Sunday. And maybe that's a healthy thing. But my thoughts were not about that pastor across town who needs to close his mouth or that pastor on the radio who better be careful. My thoughts were about me and this church and whether or not we represent God correctly and how we speak about what's revealed in his word. So I'm not really interested in looking out. I'm interested in looking in. So one gospel foundation is that the church is built upon the word of God. And you should only choose to be a part of a church where the word of God is rightly taught, spoken, believed, and applied. And if you're a part of Redeemer, and we are not rightly speaking and appropriating the Word of God, then we need to be talked to. And we need to make sure that what we proclaim about Jesus indeed is consistent with the Bible. Because the Bible is God's Word recorded for us. But now let's come to a personal level. Because that's where it's more uncomfortable for you, right? I started out by making it uncomfortable for me. So now it's your turn. Come into my office. That was a little bit funny. A little bit. What role does the Word of God play in your life? What role does the Word of God play in your life? And by that, friends, I'm not interested in what annual Bible plan you're, you have pinned to your refrigerator 
or what pops up on your smartphone each morning. What I'm interested in is in what ways is the Word of God presently shaping, teaching, convicting, molding you? In what ways is the Word of God teaching you now? If the answer is, it is not, that's okay. That's okay. But let me encourage you that today can be a new beginning. Take up and read. Take up and study. Take up and pray. If you don't know how to read the scripture, if you don't know how to take up and read, take up and study, take up and pray, take up and and understand, I, someone else in this church, look around, we would be delighted to serve you and honor God by teaching how to take and hear and believe the word. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that God's word is living and active. Living and active. You see, the words on this page are not stale and dead and academic. God's revealed here. These words are living and active. They challenge, they correct, they rebuke. They show Jesus. They expose sin. They bring salvation because God's revealed here. God's Son is revealed here. The Word is living and active. So let's go to it so it can be living and active in us. My second question Do we interact with the Word of God to confirm what we think is true? Or do we interact with the Word of God to allow it to tell us what is true? Do we interact with the Word of God to confirm what we think is true? Or do we interact with the Word of God for it to tell us and shape truth for us? I mean, part of me thinks that that Ezekiel is not speaking to the prophets of Israel, but he's speaking to your your everyday run-of-the-mill evangelical Bible study at Panera, when in verse 1, verse 2, he says, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying by saying things from their own hearts. That cuts us to the core a little bit, doesn't it? 
But you see what God's saying? Truth doesn't come from within me. Truth comes from outside of me as God, by His Spirit, speaks His Word to us. And so it only matters what my heart thinks as much as what my heart thinks is consistent with what God says. So Christians, this is what we need to understand. We can feel it and it still be wrong. We can be compelled and it still be wrong. We can be led and it still be wrong because feelings and leadings and compulsions all must be submitted to the truth of what God has said. And that's hard for us because we've been schooled that we find truth inside of ourselves. We've been schooled that from within us we find what we most believe and from within us we find what we most value and from within us we decide what's true for us and from within us we decide what our identity is going to be and the scripture says God has spoken and the scripture says God has sent his spirit to dwell within us and cause us to understand his living and active word the medicine of our culture today 2017 in Hendersonville is what you feel is true and the Bible's answer to that is no what God says is true And all of us who just said amen, I love you, and at the same time, we got to go back home, and we got to get back in our cars, and we got to say, am I willing to have my feelings, my emotions, my thoughts, my interpretations of reality, and my convictions questioned and challenged by the one true God? Because the gospel foundation is that God's word is truth. God's word is salvation. God's word tells us what is real. Finally, We need all of the Scripture to shape us. So question one was, are you willing for the Scripture to shape you, and how is it? Question two, are you willing to allow yourself to be challenged and changed by God's Word? Question three, are you willing to peruse, wrestle with, and be shaped by all of the Bible. Because here's the thing. Ezekiel 13 is just as much true in God's word as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those are equally true. And those hard passages in Leviticus about menstrual cycles, they're true too. And there's something to learn about God and God's character there. 
In Acts chapter 20, you don't have to turn there or you can, you can read this later. But the Apostle Paul is bidding farewell to the Ephesian church because he knows he's headed to Rome and he knows he's going to die. And this is what Paul said that's just always stopped me in my tracks. Paul says, my conscience is clear and there will be no blood on my hands for whatever happens to you. That's a pretty bold statement, right? Like, what if I resign today? By the way, I'm not. But what if I resign today and I said, hey, as I walk out that door, my conscience is clear and I'm 100% certain that there will be no, whatever befalls Redeemer, there will be no, like, it doesn't stick to me. Like, you'd go, that's the most preposterous, arrogant thing I've ever heard in my life, right? And yet Paul looks at the Ephesians and he says, my conscience is clear, there will be no blood on my hands. Why? Because I declared the whole counsel of God to you. I declared the totality of the word of God to you. The good and the hard, the merciful and the wrathful, the difficult and the easy. I proclaimed every bit of it to you. So listen, friends. If you're new to the faith, if you're new to the Bible, start somewhere. But if you've been around the faith Commit yourself to exposing yourself to the whole counsel of God. Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing. So this is my hope for Redeemer as we conclude. My hope for Redeemer is that we would increasingly be a church that's not filled with academic thoughts about the Bible but a church that is filled with the Scripture. That we would not be a church that loves to theologize, but we would be a church that is shaped by the Scripture. That we would not be more and more a people that talk in abstract concepts about things that are talked about in the Scripture, but we would be a people that talk about the scripture. That we would not have Bible studies that spend all of our time in content, but studies that move to what needs to change in my life. Where do I need to think differently? Where do I need to be different? That we would be open to receiving such instruction from one another. I would love to see men gathered around the word and prayer and a good cup of coffee every morning of the week. But you see, the scripture is supreme, so you don't have to do the coffee, just the scripture. I would love to see women gathered around the word in all types of settings. I would love to see a church that it's just as comfortable at a play date to talk about how often your baby naps. Excuse me, that it's just as comfortable to talk about what God's been teaching you in the Scripture as it is how often your child takes a nap. That it's just as comfortable to talk about what you've been learning from God in His Word as it is how wretched the Vols were yesterday. 
And that's pretty easy to talk about. So this is a high calling. That our lives would be so shaped by God's word that, that the greatness of God would be extolled over and over and over again. When it comes to the scripture, I, I believe there are three responses. We can reject it. We can accept it on this kind of surfacey, it sounds good, but it doesn't really do anything kind of level. Or, and this is what I'm praying for, we can receive God's word as God's absolute truth and absolute revelation of himself to a broken, needy people and say, I yield to God's word because it's true. I yield my feelings, my emotions, my thoughts, my dreams, my, my theological propositions. I yield it all to the Lord. Convict me, change me, teach me. This is a gospel foundation. This is the kind of people I'm praying will become. This is the kind of work I'm praying that God would do in our lives. Now, if you're here and you're like, man, you guys are crazy. Team, you guys can go ahead and make your way up. God, you are crazy. Maybe we are, just a little bit. But the first step toward Christianity is to recognize that you and your life and your thoughts are broken. And you and your life and your thoughts need God to speak to them. So if you'd like to take a step toward Christianity today, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to help you see God's word as a way to know him. And we'd love to point you to Jesus. Church, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So let's be a people that meet our God as he's revealed himself and worship him as such.